0: I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But Behold, this was all vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under sun during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had experienced in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in the head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived what the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Thank
1: you for that reading. Uh, What maybe a somewhat gloomy text for a beautiful day outside. And uh, what I want to do today is argue that uh, although some of us would prefer to be out there and enjoying the day and enjoying the weather, enjoying the city, uh, I'm going to try to argue that it's actually more pleasurable to be in here (laughs) worshiping. And uh, in fact, uh, the more uh, we take pleasure in what we do here, the more pleasure we can experience in the world. So in order to do that, I think uh, we need to pray uh, because that will seem a little bit crazy to some of us. So let's pray together. Uh, God in heaven, we thank you so much that you are the author of beauty, that you even are the giver of good gifts, that you are even the source of all uh, pleasures. And as we look at this topic today, we pray, God, that you would uh, reorient us, help us to Uh, to fit in uh, a different story, uh, especially a different story than is often preached in our world and our culture. And help us to ultimately see the the pleasure that's found in you. And I know for some of us that can be difficult and our sin uh, oftentimes gets in the way. Uh, But by your Holy Spirit, help us to enjoy you and to delight in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time... Uh, We are going through a series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and the way I wanted to frame this series is as a search, and I think that's particularly relevant to people in New York because it seems like people in New York are always searching or always looking for something, and the main character in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, we're calling him Kohelet, which is basically the, the Hebrew word that's translated as preacher, and Kohelet is on a search for something of substance under the sun. And last week, what uh, I tried to do is just introduce the book of Ecclesiastes very broadly and go over some broad themes. But starting today, we're going to start this little investigation on some of the things that Kohelet is trying to find uh, substance and meaning and significance in. And that brings us to something that I think is especially relevant to people in our culture and in our time, which is this, the, the pursuit of pleasure. Now, if you think about uh, this passage, or if you think about a passage that uh, people will find difficult to believe in, uh, we probably immediately think about the supernatural aspects of Scripture. So we say things like, oh, the parting of the Red Sea, or, oh, the raising of the dead of Lazarus. uh, Those are things that the average person would have a hard time believing in. But uh, I actually think the passage that we looked at today is probably going to be a passage that is one of the hardest passages to believe And I don't mean necessarily intellectually, but I guess I mean maybe existentially, uh, maybe in terms of whether we actually believe that a life pursuing pleasure is is vanity. Because picture this, uh, if someone were to tell you, just think of everything that you could possibly dream of, what would that be? And imagine in your life, all of those dreams were fulfilled. Imagine that you could live the most luxurious life that you could make billions and billions of dollars imagine that you would achieve the highest success in your career that you could enjoy the best food and drink the best wine that you can have your fill of sexual pleasures that you can be entertained by the most talented singers and what if someone told you even if you had all that you would still not be fulfilled would you believe them That's basically what Kohelet is saying here in this passage. And that's why I say I think maybe this passage is probably one of the more difficult passages to understand in Scripture. Because I think the reality of it is if someone were to tell you that, our response would basically be, yeah, maybe it didn't make you happy, but I think I would be the exception. Uh, I think I can make it work. I think it would actually fulfill me. I know myself. I know my desires. And if I had had all of these things... Then I know I would feel so fulfilled in life. But here's the thing Uh, 99% of the people in the world will never have an opportunity to experience everything that Kohelet experienced here. Most of us will never experience everything that he experienced, and therefore we're always going to live under the illusion that all the pleasures in the world is one day going to make us fulfilled. But if you think about it, why would we have a hard time believing in Kohelet's conclusion in this passage? And I think it's because of this. You know, in our culture, we've been told this story over and over again that says uh, the key to a fulfilled life is your own individual pleasure. Uh, It can be in the form of money, possessions, success, power, sex, art, alcohol, drugs, or any other kinds of exciting experiences in your life. And we're always being told that these pleasures are the key to your own happiness and the key to living a fulfilled life. Every advertisement that you see uh, is basically showing you if you have this product. You'll be like these people on this advertisement. You'll be having fun. You'll be happy. You'll enjoy life forever. Uh, I know some of you went to UPenn. Uh, there's a sociologist uh, who used to teach at UPenn. He d- he died about 10 years ago, so I'm sure he was not at Penn uh, when most of you were there. Uh, but there's a sociologist who used to be there named Philip Reef, And, <clears throat> you know, he, he wrote or he studied uh, Sigmund Freud and particularly the legacy that Sigmund Freud uh, left behind. And this year is the 50th anniversary of – His most famous book that he published called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And what he says in that book is really interesting. And basically he tries to classify history like this. He says, you know, at first you have something what he calls the political man. And the political man basically found their fulfillment and their significance in their actions within the polis or within the city. Then he says you have the religious man. And the religious man found their significance and their meaning and their identity uh, with respect to the practices and the forms of rituals and religion. Then moving on, you have what you call the economic man. And the economic man finds his meaning and significance and fulfillment and identity in his contribution to to the economy, in his trade. And finally, you have what he calls the psychological man. And the psychological man finds their meaning – significance and identity in what he says is an inward psychological attitude. And that's the influence he's arguing of Freud in our culture. And so he has this very famous line where he says this, religious man was born to be saved, psychological man is born to be pleased. And he thinks that... The shift to the psychological man is actually a pretty major shift because before people would find their meaning and significance on things outside of themselves, but we, we tend to find our meaning and significance within ourselves and we look inward. Now, just to be clear, he's obviously not saying that people haven't pursued pleasure before because that's not the case. We have here in Ecclesiastes, Kohelet is an example of that. He's pursuing pleasure. But what he's arguing is, before, pleasure was just simply pleasure. But in the modern era, pleasure is so much more. It means so much more. It's, it's actually a way in which we derive things like our meaning, like our fulfillment, like our identity, like our purpose. And that's what he says is psychological man. So let me give you a few examples of this. For example, there's nothing new about uh, sexual desire, and there's nothing new about even homosexual desire. Uh, homosexual practice is well documented in ancient cultures as well but what's unique about homosexuality in the modern era versus in the ancient world is that now this desire has been attached to things like meaning and identity Uh, the sexual desire it's become a means of identity formation which is, again, something that's very unique to the age that we live in now. And so, under Reef, what he would say is basically that that only happens to the psychological man. You wouldn't see that happen with the other kinds of man. Let me give you another example. Some of us have come from uh, maybe immigrant families, and uh, we could probably recognize some of the cultural differences between uh, our generation and our parents' generation. And uh, if you ask your parents this, uh, you know, I, I just imagine if I asked my dad this question, I would say, You know, my dad, he owned a a business, a grocery store business. If I said, Dad, do you find fulfillment in your work? He would probably say, yeah, I find fulfillment in my work because my work provides for my family. And according to Reef, this would be an example of the economic man. But if you were to ask him, yeah, but but Dad, does it make you personally happy? Do Do you find personal pleasure and enjoyment out of your work? he would probably say, what does that have to do with anything, right? What are you talking about? Uh, The reason why I work is because I want to provide for my family, and if I can provide for my family, then I'm fulfilled. But if you look at people in our culture and how we answer that question, it's very much about personal fulfillment and personal happiness. Our work is not just supposed to pay the bills or serve the common good, but we tend to demand more from what we do. We need it to fulfill us, we need it to give us identity, we need it to give us things like status, we need our work to make us feel significant. And when it fails to do that, what do we do? We look for another job, we try to switch careers. And that is why I think this passage is going to be hard for many of us to believe. Because we live in a culture where Reef says we are born to be pleased. Uh, We believe in the promise of pleasure. We're told that the fulfilled life or the good life is to experience pleasures of various kinds. And so therefore, if you know, someone's going through a hard time, what kind of counsel do you hear? The kind of counsel you hear is this. Well, you just need to have more fun. You just need to enjoy life more. Uh, I remember you know, I was talking to a woman who had uh, gone through a divorce, and a divorce is a very traumatic experience. And uh, her friend said, you know what you need? You need to get drunk. You need to meet some men. You need to travel. And you need to live it up. And that's the counsel according to the gospel of pleasure, is it not? Your ultimate problem is not a spiritual problem. Your ultimate problem is you are not experiencing enough pleasure. Therefore, go get it. If you look at our passage, Kohelet experiences all kinds of pleasures, probably more pleasures than we could ever even imagine experiencing ourselves. Verse 1, he sets out on the search. He says, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And that's what he does. First with laughter in verse 2, then with alcohol in verse 3, then with work in verse 4, then with nature in verse 5 and 6, money and possessions in verse 7 and 8, and finally with entertainment and sex in verse 8. And among those things, I imagine that we can uh, at least relate to one or two of these things in terms of the kinds of pleasures that we ourselves pursue. And he states the conclusion of that search at the beginning of the passage in verse 1, and he says, Behold, this also was vanity. In other words, he's pursued all kinds of pleasure, and at the end of the day, it didn't mean that much to him. It didn't fulfill him. In the, at the end of the day, there was still a sense of emptiness, and therefore even pleasure is like vapor evaporating into the air now I, I also think there's plenty of examples of people in the world who can back up what Kohelet is saying here uh, I, you know I have a friend and uh, you know he's been with a number of women uh, for a while now, and uh, you know we're about the same age and I, he's getting to a point in his life where He just feels the emptiness, and those kind of sexual encounters, uh, they don't mean anything to him anymore. He's looking for more. Uh, You have a few years ago, I saw this interview on 60 Minutes with Tom Brady, uh, and this was before he won his last Super Bowl. And he says this, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I reached my goal, my dream, my life, me, I think. God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all what it's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. And what else is there for me? Experience all the success that he probably could imagine. And his question is, what else is there? You have billionaire Warren Buffett. And what does he say all the time? He says, money and possessions. It's not going to buy you happiness. These things are a utility, but it can't give you the meaning and the significance and the fulfillment that you long for. And so you see all of these people, we have examples of people all over the world who are saying the very things that Kohelet is saying here, that still I've experienced these pleasures and still I'm not satisfied. Now just to be clear, uh, this passage isn't saying that pleasure is a bad thing. You know, I've heard people say, you know what the problem with Christianity is? The problem with Christianity is it's anti-pleasure. And that makes Christianity repressive. And that's actually something that Freud would have said. But that's not what Kohelet is saying here. He's not saying that pleasure is a bad thing that needs to be repressed. In fact, he would later on in chapter 5 say this, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift from God. And so he's saying, pleasure, it's not a bad thing. And even the pleasures that we experience and enjoy in the world, these things are actually a gift from God that we are meant to enjoy. Rather, he's trying to say this. If all you have is pleasure and nothing else, it's useless. What's the point? You remember his first question in chapter 1, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And he answered that question in verse 11. And he says, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Even if you experience pleasure through possessions, through experiences, through success, what do you really have at the end of the day? Nothing. Why? Because death will one day take it away. It's a sobering thought and a sobering reality. Starting in verse 14, Kohelet, he reflects on wisdom and folly, and he says this, "...the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise?" And here he's reflecting on the reality of death. And that's why death is called the great equalizer, because whether you're wise or foolish, it doesn't matter because you're going to die. Whether you are rich or poor, it doesn't really matter because you're going to die. Whether you experience more pleasure or less pleasure, it doesn't really matter because death is still going to take you. And there is nothing to be gained under the sun you know I became a Christian uh, late in high school and uh, I grew a lot in my understanding of Christianity and faith uh, in college and for that I'm actually very thankful for that you know when I was in college there would be times where I would look at other college students uh, who were living their lives and I would wonder to myself am I am I missing out on something you know I spent my college years serving my church And I spent my college years serving the the Christian group on campus. I didn't party. I didn't hook up with anyone. Not to say that anybody would have hooked up with me. But I would go to Bible studies. I would go to prayer meetings. And there was a part of me that wondered, "Did did I miss out on the college experience? Am I missing out on the opportunity for more pleasure? Am I missing out on the opportunity to be irresponsible and to be stupid? Am I missing out on what is supposed to be the best four years of your life by not having fun and pursuing all of these kinds of pleasures? So there's a small part of me at the time that would kind of regret it and kind of be like, maybe I missed out. Maybe I spent too much time at prayer meetings and at church. But you know, as I've gotten older, uh, here's my conclusion. I don't really feel like I've missed out at all. And I think the reason I come to that conclusion is because I am actually more aware of the reality of death and of my own mortality. You know, in college, uh, I don't think I had ever been to even one funeral. At this point in my life, I've actually been to many funerals. And uh, tragically, they were not all funerals of people who died of old age. And, uh, you know, when you go to funerals and, um, you know, you hear more and more about Recently, I just read that book about a month ago about the neurosurgeon who died in his 30s due to cancer. And uh, it might sound morbid, but it makes me think about my own death and my own mortality and how my own days are numbered. And I think about my own funeral. And when I die, I don't think I'll ever say, I regret not partying more I regret not drinking more. I regret not sleeping around more. I regret not watching TV more. I imagine my regrets will be more along the lines of, you know, I should have loved people more. I wish I poured out my life for others even more. I may regret not being a better husband, not being a better father, not being a better pastor. But I don't think I'll ever regret not pursuing or experiencing more pleasure. I think it's a thought of my own mortality that puts pleasure in its proper place. You see, pleasures are nice, but they will never carry the kind of weight to give us significance and meaning and fulfillment. And if we miss out on certain pleasures, is it really going to matter at our funeral when we die? (laughs) Is anybody going to say, ah, I remember this person. They lived life with so much pleasure. My guess would be no. Now, as I said before, pleasure is not a bad thing. Pleasure is a good thing, and pleasure is a gift from God. Pleasure can never be the ultimate thing. And ironically, when pleasure becomes an ultimate pursuit, then pleasure actually becomes less pleasurable. Now, let me tease that out a little bit and explain what I mean. You know, sometimes when I hear people talk about marriage, uh, and that's people who aren't married yet, uh, people talk about marriage in a very uh, glorious and optimistic kind of way. And sometimes, you know, my personality, I kind of want to give them a reality check and be like, yeah, it's good, but get ready. It's hard work. You have to die to yourself. Uh, But sometimes, you know, people have this ultimate Uh, understanding of what marriage is supposed to do and say, you know, marriage is going to be my fulfillment. In fact, life doesn't actually begin until I get married. And uh, what I, you know, what I notice about people who have that kind of mentality about marriage is, uh, you know, you're going to put a lot of pressure and strain and stress on your marriage with that kind of perspective. Uh, You know, If you think marriage is going to be your ultimate fulfillment, and then you get married and it's not your ultimate fulfillment, you're going to actually be overly critical of your spouse. And you're going to say, what's wrong with you? Why am I not happy? Or you're going to constantly think to yourself, did I marry the right person? This isn't how I thought I would feel. And because you place so much weight on marriage itself, you're never going to actually get to enjoy marriage You know how you enjoy marriage? is by realizing that marriage is not your ultimate uh, purpose and fulfillment in life. Then you can actually enjoy it. Then you don't put so much pressure on it to be this thing that it's not created or designed to be. I think you could say that about any kind of pleasure. If you place high expectations on the pleasures of life, at the end of the day what you do is you're just putting a lot of pressure on them to fulfill you. And more often than not, what that translates into is putting more pressure on yourself to obtain these pleasures so that they can fulfill you. You're going to feel like you have to make a certain amount of money. You're going to have to feel like you have to reach a certain level of success. You're going to feel like you need to live a certain kind of lifestyle to be fulfilled, to have significance. But eventually, you'll be disappointed because you won't be fulfilled. And then you'll chase after some other thing that you think will give you fulfillment. And all along the way, you'll actually never enjoy the pleasures that you have in life because you're always trying to derive something greater out of them. See, pleasures are a good thing, but they are not the ultimate thing. And they can't give you fulfillment, they can't give you meaning, and they can't give you ultimate identity. So, I think that begs a question. How then should we experience the pleasures of the world? And I think the answer is pretty simple. Uh, we experience the pleasures of the world when we find our ultimate pleasure in God. I mean, that, that's going to reorient our perspective with respect to pleasure so that we can actually enjoy them. You know, Psalm 16:11, uh, we read that in the beginning of the service in, call, in the call to worship, and it says, "You make known to me the path of life; in your presence there is fullness of joy; at your right hand are pleasures forevermore." In other words, David here, who wrote Psalm 16, he's finding enjoyment in the presence of God. He's finding pleasures at the right hand of God. You have Psalm 73, Asaph. He wrote that. He comes to the same realization. Asaph, what is he struggling with? Well, he's struggling with the fact that he sees the wicked in the world and they have all the health and they have all the wealth. And he looks at himself and he says, all in vain have I kept my hands pure. And he has the opposite uh, perspective or the opposite problem of Kohelet. Kohelet is uh, seeking all the pleasures and he's saying all of this is in vain. Asaph is kind of on the other side and he says, you know, I have kept my hands pure in vain. And I look at the people in the world and uh, that's what I want. But eventually he comes to the realization that ultimate pleasure is found in God's presence. When he enters into the sanctuary of God, he comes to the conclusion that God's goodness is revealed, not in the giving of possessions and things, but God's goodness is revealed in the giving of himself. See, in the Bible, there are so many hints that pleasure not only comes from God, but the very source of pleasure is found in God himself, himself. That's why the gospel is good news for us, because it's about how God gives access to us. God gives us access to himself through the work of Jesus on the cross. That God actually wants us to experience the highest of pleasures, only we're settling for the pleasures of this world and not seeking it in him, the very source of ultimate pleasure Does God want you to experience infinite joy and endless delight? Yes, he does. And that's why he's given us Jesus Christ. In Christ, we can now have relationship with him, and we can now delight in him. But here's the other component. In Christ, we can have access not only to ultimate pleasure, but now all other pleasures will be more pleasurable because of him. You know, there's this uh, amateur golfer. I'm not a big golf fan, so I don't really know my golfers. You may know him. Uh, There's an amateur golfer named Bryson DeChambeau. (laughs) I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. And uh, he happens to be a Christian, too. And uh, he was giving this interview in Golf Digest. And I guess he was paired with, like, Jordan Spieth, who's, like, you know, Really great. I know who Jordan Speeth is. He's like this really great golfer and uh, I guess he was paired with him at the Masters tournament and the interviewer asked him, you know, does, does it make you really nervous to be paired with Jordan Spieth and his response is this, you know, most people I guess say they're nervous and look, as I've been saved by grace, it doesn't matter. This is just another golf shot out there and if I can perform at the highest level, great. If not, it's an opportunity to show my grace and character. And I thought something important is revealed in his response uh, and really connected to the fact that he understands that he is saved by grace. You know, somebody who builds their meaning and significance identity on winning a golf tournament or hitting a good shot in golf, uh, I don't think they can really actually enjoy golf because there's so much pressure and so much hinging on their success as a golfer. But I think somebody like him... He can actually enjoy the game of golf. He can actually enjoy the moment. He can actually enjoy playing in the tournament and being prepared with Jordan Spieth because that's not his ultimate purpose. That's not his ultimate pleasure in life. He's been saved by grace, and therefore his source of pleasure is in one who is greater than him. And because of that, everything else becomes more pleasurable. The you delight in Christ? That's the question I want to pose to you today. Do you delight in the grace that he has shown you? And does it mean anything to you? See, a lot of people, I think, call themselves a Christian, but don't necessarily delight in God, which maybe that should make you question whether you really understand the gospel at all. Because there are some people who may say this, you know, I just want to focus on me right now. I want to work on my career. I want to just have some fun. And uh, later on down the line, I'll focus on my spiritual life. I'll focus on God later. But I think what that really means is this, uh, you know, I don't really feel like I need God now. Uh, but maybe I'll need him later when I'm not so young anymore, when I don't have all of these opportunities for pleasure and to have fun anymore. Uh maybe that's when I'll need him, when I'm getting closer to death and I'm in my old age. But if that's you, maybe you have a skewed understanding of what the gospel is and what who God is. Because again, God is not simply a means for your ultimate pleasure, but he is the source of pleasure himself. God is not a utility to be used, but he is a beauty to be admired and worshipped and enjoyed. If you're not enjoying him now because you want to enjoy other things, what makes, him, what makes you think you're going to enjoy him in the future? Maybe at best you'll see him as a utility and you'll see him as useful. But maybe you won't see him as beautiful. You see, the way to true pleasure is found in the gospel because God has given himself so you too can enjoy him forever. And paradoxically, you'll live a more enjoyable life and enjoy the pleasures of this world a lot more because of that. You know, last week I started... um, I said, you know, I'm going to try to end every sermon with a song that corresponds uh, to the passage. And uh, you know what the problem with this passage is? There's just too many songs to choose from, which kind of tells you how obsessed our culture is with things like pleasure and living in the moment. Uh, but he, uh, this is a song I ended up uh, choosing, and I'll, I'll read the lyrics. But first, let me set the mood. Picture yourself in a dark room, and this dark room is filled with lots of people, and these people, they're holding drinks, and they're trying to hook up with somebody for the night, and then you begin to hear a beat, <laughs> and you hear these words by Kesha Young." I hear your heart beat to the beat of the drums, oh, what a shame that you came here with someone. So while you're here in my arms, let's make the most of the night like we're gonna die young. We're gonna die young. We're gonna die young. Let's make the most of the night like we're gonna die young. Young hearts at our minds, running till we out of time. Wild childs looking good, living hard just like we should. Don't care who's watching when we tear it up. And then in parentheses it says, you know, that magic that we... Got nobody can touch, for sure. Looking for some trouble tonight, yeah. Take my hand, I'll show you the wild side. Like it's the last night of our lives, Uh uh-huh. We'll keep dancing till we die. I'm sure it's fun to dance to. But if you die, is it really going to matter that you made the most of that night like you died young? I hope not. I hope most of us can see the shallowness. Although it's a catchy song, that's a tragic anthem to sing if death is a reality and if people do die young. Really, that night, that moment, that's where you find substance. You can say that about pretty much every pleasure out there. Alcohol, drugs, sex, even career success, money, and possessions. Will these things really matter when you die? Probably not. That's what Kohelet is saying. But praise God, Jesus has given us access to the greatest pleasure and the only pleasure that can withstand the pressure of giving us meaning and fulfillment and significance for all of eternity, and we have that in Christ. Let's bow our heads and uh, perhaps reflect as the worship team leads us.